Hey, listen, welcome to reality. Um, wherever you find yourself this morning, okay, if you feel disconnected from God, um, if you feel super close to him, you're like on fire for Jesus. If you're curious, I say this almost every Sunday morning, man, I want you to know that this is a safe place for you to be able to process your faith. And what we've been doing is we've been going through the first book of the New Testament. That is um, the newer portion of the scriptures that details the narrative and the account of Jesus Christ. And so I want to invite you, especially like if you're exploring Christianity, to grab a Bible. We have one for you at the end. If you want to read the Bible and just ask questions like, dude, what does this mean? And what kind of language? We want to help you at least have a conversation about faith. And what we've been doing over the past three weeks, if we began a journey into the most famous sermon preached by the most famous person in all of history, Jesus Christ. And this sermon is called the Sermon on the... That's right. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And it is Jesus' countercultural message of the kingdom that he came to establish on earth. And when I say kingdom, this is the phrase that Jesus uses. And like he, he seems to be just totally about this kingdom in the New Testament, the kingdom of God, a kingdom that he came to establish. It's like the reign and the rule of God. And he started a couple of weeks ago, we started with the Beatitudes. This is a series of statements of blessings, of blessings that show us the very character of God that show us what it looks like to be like the marks of a follower of Jesus. It's what the Spirit of God should produce inside of us when we enter the kingdom of God. And as he works inside of us, we should be displaying, we should be displaying these beatitudes, these different marks of being a follower of Jesus. And what is that kingdom like? Some people... Um, may perceive Christianity or the kingdom of God to be a kingdom of morality that looks like a kingdom of niceness. You know what I'm talking about? I love how people in the South, by the way, what they say, the way they say nice, you know how they say it? Nice. It's nice, right? I really love it. It's like the only, my wife, she is from northern Florida, which is the South, by the way. Uh, she's from a really small town. That's pretty much the only word I can imitate properly, okay? Nice, okay? So it's really nice. And some people perceive Christianity to be this way. It's what I like to call the kingdom of Ned Flanders, all right? Uh, anybody know who Ned Flanders is? Yes? He's Homer Simpson's famous neighbor. He is a committed evangelical Christian, okay? He is a pillar in the community of Springfield, and Christianity Today in 2001, they actually named him the most famous evangelical Christian, okay? So I want you to think about that. The imagination of those, like if you're here, you're not a follower of Jesus yet, your mind and your picture of Christianity, what the kingdom of God is, may have been shaped by Ned Flanders. And the main characteristic that Ned Flanders displays is what? He's nice. It's niceness. In fact, in that, particular, in that particular cartoon, it's like he can't get angry. In fact, he kind of like, like his mouth quivels a little bit. And I'm not a Simpsons buff. 
And by no means am I saying that Ned Flanders is a bad person. But when you look at Christianity in the scriptures in the New Testament, uh, when I think about Christ on the cross, when I think about the determination of Paul, when I think about the boldness of Peter, when I think about the persecution of pastors in church history like Polycarp, when you see the Spirit of God move in the book of Acts, when you look and read the kind of Christianity that we see in the book of James, niceness is not the primary image that I get from the text. That's not what the kingdom of God is like, is like. And so we have to be careful as we're entering this part of the Sermon on the Mount that our Christianity is not, not, it's not known more by its niceness than by the depth of its convictions. The Beatitudes showed us what it looks like to embody the kingdom of God. Like there's these marks, right? Like, uh, we, you know, the blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who know that they have a need for God. Blessed are those who, who, who men, they know, they know that they need like Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who hunger for justice, who live mercifully in a world full of revenge and payback. Blessed are those who have a singular, undivided heart for God, who commit to making peace. When you commit to those things, this is where I want to tie this, these next couple of verses. You're going to attract both blessing and persecution. The Beatitudes cannot be lived inside a capsule. Does that make sense? You can't just live this out in isolation. You have to live out your faith in public. There's a witness. There is a witness. And the question that emerges from these verses that we're going to read today is, what does it look like to live in the kingdom of God in our cultural moment? What does it look like to be a witness of the kingdom of God? Today, Jesus gives us two metaphors of what it looks like to live different. Look at the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. Verse 13, that's where we are today. He finishes the Beatitudes and he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Okay, think about this for a moment. Uh, you have to... Like, we have to place ourselves in the moment uh, and do a work to picture what's happening in this, in that particular time. You have Jesus sitting down, people are standing and listening to the most famous sermon that has been ever preached. And this is what's happening in the crowd. You have the disciples, so you have people that follow Jesus. You have people who are just curious and, like, you know, trying to see, like, who is this dude that I've been hearing about? You have the religious leaders such as the Pharisees. The Pharisees were religious elites who wanted to add a certain kind of rules in order to be approved and earn the grace of God. But there's even more religious elites during that time. There's also the Sadducees. The Sadducees were other elites that didn't believe in the resurrection of the Son of God. All of these different people are in the crowd. And Jesus is delivering this message. You had people there that 
had a political expectation of the Messiah that what he came to do, he came to save us from the Roman government. That's what we want to see. And Jesus begins to teach and answer the question, well, what does our Christian witness look like? It needs to be salty. So what does that mean? And one of the reasons why I love the way Jesus teaches people is that he uses images and language most often that are common to people. Don't you love that? Don't you love that he uses salt and light? Two items that anywhere in any form of the socioeconomic spectrum can relate to. You can be poor or wealthy, and you will use salt and light. I love how John Stott, um, he was a famous pastor in England. He talks about how, like, um, Jesus maybe, as he was growing up as a boy, he saw his mom use salt. Salt some food, preserve some food. Maybe at night, she would light an oil lamp to be able to see around the home. These are two essential elements of every home. And salt was uh, very valuable in the ancient world. It was used for two purposes. The first one was preservation because, of course, there were no ice machines back in the day. The only way you could preserve something was by either soaking it in a saline solution or was to salt it. And so some people believe, some scholars believe, that what it means to be salt is that when you embody the values of the kingdom, if you live out these beatitudes that Jesus talked about, you're an agent of preservation in humanity. You're an agent of preserving what it means to be a human being in light of Christ. In the midst of moral decay, embodying the values of the kingdom helps you to preserve what it actually means to be human. Does that make sense? The second use of salt was flavor because salt is palatable. Salt is tasty. And so what is he saying to the people of the kingdom? What is he saying? He's saying, listen, this is your identity. This is who you are. You are, think about it, you are the salt of the earth. This is your identity. This is who you are. And one of the best ways that I can explain that is by actually telling you what Jesus doesn't want. Jesus is not after bland Christianity. Does that make sense? Blandness. He is not in for like this spectator Christianity that is just about people being nice. He was living Think about it, during a time where people had a lot of choices, there were many Roman gods, there were factions in Judaism, there are all these choices and pressures that followers of Jesus had to make. And the same is true today for you and for me. Like, we're living in a pluralist society, we're bombarded with information, and you have to make choices today, if you're following Jesus, of whether or not you are going to give him your full allegiance, whether or not you're going to live in light of Christ. Part of the temptation for the church today, for you and for me, is to be like a bland church, to embrace compromise, to lack conviction, to be a school of morals, and that's it. And that's not what Jesus wants for you and for me. That's not the kind of people that Jesus is talking about. Think about what he says, and this is a warning that I want us to feel like this is a passage that 
even as I was studying this for the past week, it just like cut me to the heart. Look at what he says. This is a strong warning. If the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trample under people's feet. So then what is the essence of being salt? It's this, and you can take notes. What does it mean, like, what does it mean to be salt? What does it mean to have a witness in the public square in our cultural moment? It means that we live out our convictions in a culture of compromise. We live out our convictions in a culture of compromise. You are the salt of the earth. This is who you are. Live different. Live out your faith in public with integrity. It's about like faithfulness in the small things. And we live in a time where we can compromise in so many different ways. Haven't you seen this in your own life? And I've seen it in mine. In business, in different jobs, you're put in a situation where it's like so easy to compromise, to stay quiet, or to like laugh nervously. Like, <laughs> you know. Haven't you been there? In the middle of a job, some, somebody says something absolutely like devastating. And you just don't even know what to say. One of the temptations of our time. Listen, is to do brand management, image management for Jesus. In our efforts to be so sophisticated about Christ, listen, I feel this. This is a temptation for me. I want to articulate the kingdom and God clearly, and you know what? We're not that weird, you know, but you know, like, it's a temptation to be bland, to just be accepted. In my experience, when you're talking to people who are far away from Jesus, the moment demands honesty, not just image management. And we're living in a culture, a moment, listen, where Christianity will be more unique and distinct than the culture around us. It's not getting, like, closer. We're getting further away. Christianity will become weirder <laughs> as time moves on. And God is calling you and me to be salt, to live out our convictions in a culture of compromise, a culture of compromise. There is a difference, listen, there is a difference between identifying with somebody and becoming identical with somebody. Listen, Jesus identifies with people. Listen, compassion, he was compassionate. Compassionate in the scriptures means to suffer with. He went to the margins, the least and the last of society, and, and he identified with them. He lived among them. He preached the good news of the kingdom. He identified with them, but he wasn't identical to them. Do you see that? That's the difference. Yes, let's identify with the people around us. But salty Christianity means that we live different. We live different. I think about all of the ways the disciples were tempted to lead a double life when they were following Jesus. I think about the pressure to be liked by people. I think about Peter denying Jesus three times. This is like the bold dude in Christianity. If he faced that temptation, so will you. And me, so will you and me. And Jesus says, this is, this is who you are, and it's a challenge. Be who you are. Otherwise, you are not worth your salt. 
<laughs> Do you know where that statement comes from, by the way? See, salt used to be such a prized commodity that sometimes even Roman soldiers were paid in salt. And if somebody didn't perform at a high level, people would say they were not worth their salt. And what happens, right? What is Jesus saying to us? If you and I don't lead out of the identity that he's already given to you and to me, like, dude, it's not worth it. He says it's useless. That's how strong, like, it is. He, he's challenging you and me to reorder our lives around his values. That's what brings blessing to us. It's for our joy. It's flourishing for us. This is for our good and for his glory. And think about the life of Jesus. He is in, he's a picture of what it looks like to live this out. His life is so attractive in part because he's so distinct from the world around us. He is salty. I want to remind you, listen, this is what John, another one of the disciples, he writes this in 1 John chapter 2. This is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. The one who says, I've come to know him, and yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth of God is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. What about you? Is your life distinct? If you claim to be a follower of Jesus and you look at what Jesus is saying here, are you being salt? We need to ask ourselves, this text, this is why. Listen, I mentioned this to you earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. A temptation for us is to read the Sermon on the Mount and to try to do all of these things apart from the power of the Spirit of God. We need to get the order right. First, we receive the kingdom and the Spirit of God produces these things in us, right? That's the order. We don't do this in order to earn God's love. We do this because this is our identity. We're living out of the identity that Jesus gives us. Amen? So what is the question that we have to ask ourselves today? Think about your life. Is there any difference between our approach to materialism than the culture around us? When you think about your life, is there any distinction between your approach to pleasure, for instance, is there any distinction in our application of ethics? Does our compassion know the limitations of the world, or is it stronger? The answers to these questions reveal whether the salt, right, is penetrating us or if it's becoming bland. This is so powerful. And what does this look like even more practically? Like, I, I want to give you this picture. Like, like Jesus, and I, you can correct me. I haven't seen this in the Bible. He never said, you know what? Go and be a massive church. He never says that in the scriptures. He wants us to make disciples. He wants us to proclaim like things to the end of the earth. And I, of course, as a pastor, as a disciple, I want to see more disciples in Miami all the time. I want to see it. I want to see Jesus, ex like I want to see G people experience the life in Christ, okay? But, but um, he did say, 
And he did call you and me to be distinct, to be salt, to live different. That's how we display the kingdom of God in Miami. I want you to think about what Jesus Christ did with 12 men who were salt. What is more powerful? 12 people, a small group of people who are fully committed to living in the way of Jesus or a thousand bland Christians? What do you think is going to help establish, right, the church and the kingdom of God here in Miami? What do you think has more power? This is a very tough text, an invitation, a challenge for you and for me today, and a warning that if salt loses its taste, its saltiness, like, it's no longer good for anything. So he's calling us to be these kind of people who live out our convictions. Okay, but not only that, then Jesus says this. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. It gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see you good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So, um, what does it mean for followers of Jesus to be the light of the world? Simply put, it means that our witness must be visible, right? Christianity is a public faith. It's not private. In other words, our life should display the reality of Jesus. Did you know what our mission is? Our mission as a church is to lead people to discover and display the reality of Jesus. So there's a proclamation of the message, and there's also a demonstration of the gospel. Proclamation and demonstration. These are parts of the gospel. And so this idea of a city in a hill, like it's so captivating because ancient towns were often built with white limestone. And so what happened is like they gleamed in the sun. Like if you've ever watched Lord of the Rings, yes. I'm sorry, I had to bring it up because the city of Gondor looks exactly like this, dude. What happens is it gleams in the sun and it can't be easily hidden because it's on a hill. And at night, their oil lamps would shed some glow over the surrounding area. So there's a sense of a collective discipleship in view here. That this is something that you don't just live out privately. That this is something that you live out collectively. I love um, what um, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's an author by the name of Alan Kreider who wrote a book called The Third Way. And he quotes this Nicaraguan peasant uh, named Marcelino. Look, look at what he says in response to this text. He says, a lit up city that's on top of a hill can be seen from far away. As we can see the lights of San Miguelito from very far away when we're rowing at night on the lake. A city is a great union of people. And as there are a lot of houses together, we see a lot of light. And that's the way our community will be. It will be seen lighted from far away if it is united by love. There is a distinct and different witness 
that we can have together as the body of Christ. A distinct collective witness. And this metaphor of light, it's, it's so rich in Scripture. Jesus says about himself that he's the light of the world. We read some weeks ago in Matthew chapter 4 that the light had dawned in the midst of darkness, that change was possible. But now here Jesus is saying to the disciples, you are the light of the world. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see what happens when you enter the kingdom of God? You are being shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world, and he says to you, this is your identity. You are the light of the world. His character is embodied in the Beatitudes, and he promises he's going to do that work in your heart, in your life, as you follow him. You are the light of the world, and to be a light in the world presupposes darkness, because the purpose of light is not to put it under a table, as we look in the text. It's not to put it under a bowl, because what happens when you, when you put a light under a bowl? What happens? Talk to me. It goes out. Why? The oxygen comes out, right? In this case, of course, the, the, the lamps that you're thinking about, they were actually like oil lamps with a little fire in them. This is how you take oxygen out from the fire, and maybe that's how some of you actually feel. You may feel like the oxygen has been taken out of your life and the fire is gone. That if you came to know Jesus at some point in your life and you're like, dude, if somebody preached about salt tonight, you were like, ah, you know, we're going to take the city, you know, and, and, and the fire is burning within me. And I want to tell everybody about who he is because of what he's done. But now you feel the sense of apathy and exhaustion. And maybe even when you hear a message like this, you feel a sense of shame. And you ask yourself, how do I get back the fire? Sometimes the answer is just to live out of your identity. This is who you are, says Jesus. You are the light of the world. Be a light. Start small. The purpose of a lamp is to place it in a position where it can illuminate other things. And I want to tell you, when I see you this morning, and I know most of you, man, I, I know many of your stories, and I know the talent and some of the dreams that you have and that you've had for the kingdom of God. I can look at you right now, and I'm like, wow, God. Look at these men and women that you love here, that you've gifted here, and the plan and the purpose that you have for their lives here. And maybe you don't feel like that today, but even me, a sinner that can see that in you, imagine how much more God can see in you. This is who you are. You are a light. Be salt. Be light. That's what God is calling you to be today, not to achieve, not to earn but to literally be like, God, help me to just live out who I am in Christ. Do you believe that? You need to tell your own heart this morning, God, this is who I am. This is who I am. I am the light of the world. I am made. 
to be salt. This is what God is calling you to do. How do we do this? It's explicit in the text. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. How do you shine your light? How do you shine your light? In your speech, your conduct, your attitude on the job, your effort, your proclamation of the gospel. These good works, these good deeds that very practically you live out in your faith, they're not so that you can get the glory. It says in the text, dude, this is to give glory to your Father in heaven. It's a reflection. It's a reflection of the character of the heart of the Father. For all, listen, for all the things that the church gets accused of, and the church has done historically, like there's been some terrible things that have happened in history. Um, Christians have been part of being salt and light in the world for thousands of years. Like we've been a part of providing medical care all over the world. We've been a part of the abolition of slavery. We've been a part of the abolition of child labor, the establishment of orphanages and more. These are all areas where Christians have been a light in the world. And you can be that light too. In a small way in your family. <laughs> in a small way at your job. In a small way in the community. You are the light of Christ. See, Christianity is not only meant to be experienced, but it's also meant to be displayed. Look at what God did, man, with a group of people who were salt and light. That, listen, that's part of my hope and reason why we even moved back to Miami in the first place. Um, there's a, you and I have the opportunity to serve in a lot of different places, either here in the United States or somewhere else. But we knew, both me and my wife, not only felt called to come back to the city because we love her, even in its brokenness, but we also knew that this is a place that is actually underserved. There's a lot of churches that need to be started in Miami. Did you know that? Like, if you're, only, if you're only involved in um, a bubble of Christianity, then maybe you're not as aware of that need. Maybe you're not as aware that literally there's hundreds of thousands of people who have moved to the city in the past couple of years. Just within a five-mile radius. It's wild. And so there's a great opportunity to be a light in the city. And imagine what God could do. That's my prayer, right? that the seed of the gospel would first take root in our hearts, right? I'm like, God, help us, help me to, to pursue you, to desire you, to grow in you, and that the seed of the gospel would grow in our hearts, and then it would grow in our community. And as that seed grows, maybe it can become a tree where people can actually come and find rest in the shade of this church, just as another faithful light along the other faithful lights in the city. Amen? And so what does that look like? for you and for me. I just want, I want you to imagine what that would look like if you and me were committed Christians in an age of compromise. That if we would be salt and light, what could God do in us and among us? All of this 
It requires courage. It requires visibility. It requires us to make our faith public. And one of the most famous stories, one of my favorite stories, I'll probably share it here many times along the years, is the story and the account of the martyrdom of Polycarp. Polycarp is a very popular baby name. Oh, no, kidding. No, Polycarp. Um, <laughs> I have intrusive thoughts all the time, guys. I'm sorry about that. That just came in out of nowhere. Wow. Polycarp was one of the first pastors in the history um, of the church. Okay. Gosh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, he, think about this. Polycarp was a pastor in the, uh, in the city of Smyrna in the second century, and he had been discipled by the apostle John himself. Isn't that wild? Imagine you being discipled by John. Yeah, he's my pastor, you know. Around the year 155, the Roman government seized Polycarp in a house just outside of the city, and they dragged him into one of those haunting Roman stadiums where they would kill Christians, where they would, I mean, it, it, it was abusive. It was absolutely terrible. And as he faces imminent death and martyrdom, he uttered the following words, which are preserved for us in this early document of the history of the church. Because Christianity hasn't been around for five years, by the way. Thousands of years. This is what is written about Polycarp in the second century. Listen to this. Thereupon, he was led forth. And the great uproar of them that heard that Polycarp had been seized. Accordingly, he was led before the proconsul, right, like the governor of that town, who asked him if he were the man himself. And when he confessed, the proconsul tried to persuade him, saying, have respect to thine age, and so forth, according to their customary forms. Swear by the genius of Caesar, repent. Say, away with the atheists. It's interesting. Um, Christians were called atheists back in the day. Then Polycarp looked with a severe countenance on the mob of lawless heathen in the stadium. <laughs> and he waved his hand at them. And looking up to heaven, he groaned and said, away with the atheists. But the proconsul urged him and said, Swear, and I will release thee. Curse the Christ. And Polycarp said, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he hath done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? But the proconsul again persisted and said, Swear by the genius of Caesar. And he answered, if thou dost vainly imagine that I would swear by the genius of Caesar, as thou sayest, pretending not to know what I am, hear plainly that I am a Christian. And what followed, of course, after that speech was his death. 
That's what it looks like to be salt and light in the world. To embody the Beatitudes of Jesus. At times, it will require patience. At times, it will require humility. At times, it will require peacemaking. And yet, in other times, it may require courage in the face of persecution. So very practically, what I want to challenge you today is to, of course, examine your heart. And this is a, a text that exposes, you know, where we are. And if you feel like, wow, I'm just not distinct at all. I've lost my saltiness or I have put my lamp, my light under the table. I want to encourage you to just pray to God in a moment and just to ask him to return that to you to give you the courage to live out of your identity as a Christian. We don't need more people that play church on Sunday mornings. Miami doesn't need that kind of a church. Miami needs a salty church, okay? A church of salt and light. So I want to encourage you to spend some time in prayer and that, and I want to give you one very, like, an invitation, a challenge, okay? So in a couple of weeks... Um, we're going to celebrate Easter here at Reality, which is so wild, man. I just can't even believe it, right? It's just been a couple of months, and here we are uh, in the middle of a year. And what I want to challenge you to do is just to take one little step, right? This is where we want to be. Like, we want to be disciple makers, salt and light. We want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus in our workplace. We want to send you, some of you, to be missionaries across the world at some point that Jesus, like, you, that you would actually have the boldness to say, God, send me wherever. That's where we want to be. And on that journey, we want you to just take one step, you know, depending on where you are. For some of us, Easter presents an opportunity to be salt and light to our neighbors, to extend a simple invitation. Easter is one of those holidays that people who are not followers of Jesus or who are just curious about Jesus, they'll just say, yeah, sure, I'll come, I'll come. So I want to challenge you, just as Easter approaches April 17th, to now, to begin to pray, God, help me to be salt and light wherever I am and help me to take just one next step.